Let's pray. Lord, this morning, I thank you for your word. I pray that you would open our hearts, not just to hear it and to know it and to understand it, but Lord, that it would transform us so we could live it out by your grace. We ask in your name. Amen. Amen. We've been working through this series on Jesus' parables through the Gospel of Luke, and all of these particular parables take place as he is on the road through Samaria. And as we've, we've done a few now, we may be wondering, as people often do, why does Jesus spend so much time just telling stories anyway? Isn't it easier just to kind of be straight up about the things that you need to talk about, just sort of say it propositionally? Well, one of the reasons Jesus tells stories is because we love stories, don't we? Stories have a way of getting inside of us, and we can respond to them imaginatively. This is why we, we love books or movies or film or whatever it might be. We love to hear a good story. In fact, we love to hear friends tell good stories as well. But stories have a way of communicating truth in a way that sometimes just a lecture or me speaking propositionally won't convey. Sometimes the greatest truths are best communicated through stories. We could have Jesus say, of course, there was God the Father loves wayward children. And of course, that's true. But we respond to that truth when we hear a story like the prodigal son in a way that the truth kind of gets in us. And we start to think, maybe I am like a prodigal son, or maybe I am like the older brother, or maybe I need to be like the faithful father. Last week's parable was about the dishonest manager, and some of you will remember that if you were here, and we talked about God's grace given to the manager, uh, the call of Jesus to have gumption to live out what he calls us to, and we also talked about God's guidance. We talked about great, the grace of God to people who don't deserve it, which we, which we saw both in the prodigal son and in the dishonest manager. We're going to see it here as well in this one today. But we also talked about uh, the guidance of God in working through difficult transitions in our lives, working through changes in our lives, and the need to follow and to obey him. And at the end of the parable last week, Jesus ends with this, this statement, because not only did Jesus teach in stories, but he also did teach with statements as well. But he, he ends with this point that you can't serve two masters. You can't serve God and money. Or in a sense, you can't serve the kingdom of self and the kingdom of God. You need to choose who you will follow and who you will serve. And that question rings in our ears as we head into this parable. Who will you serve? And how would you live your life if you were in the situation of the rich man and the poor man? So let's look again at this passage, verses 19 to 31. Thanks, Jürgen, again for reading it for us. And I want to draw our attention first just to the contrast that Jesus sets up as he starts to tell this story. And I think the first thing to note, and we'll get to it in just a minute, we'll come back to it near the end of the sermon, but the, the most important thing to note, I think, is this, is the rich man is never named, but the poor man gets a name. Poor man's named, rich man's not named. And in Jesus' view, it's the one who has nothing, who was known and named, and in the end was greeted and gathered into the arms of Father Abraham, was brought into the presence of the faithful as they rest in God, waiting for the resurrection. Whereas the rich man, who would have been well-known, right, probably had a measure of status and influence, and people knew who that guy was living up on the hill. He's left alone, 
and unknown and unnamed and, in fact, suffering at the end of his life because of the choices that he made. And this is just a great example up front of the reversal of the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of our world, that God chooses the weak and the poor to work his purposes. That's the first thing. We'll get back again to the name in a second. But the rest of the contrast carry out throughout the, the parable, right? The first man's rich, the second man's poor. The first man's rich in purple, which is often sort of this regal uh, image. It's also sort of this picture of just lavish wealth. So this guy's really well off, right? The second man, uh, what's he clothed in? Gross sores? right? And where the first man gets to eat these feasts every day, the second man longs to eat. The only kind of eating that happens around him is what? The dogs licking the gross sores. That's the parallel, right? It's like, oh, this is really grim. The ESV Bible study notes, as I was preparing for this sermon, they put it this way. I thought this was really good how they put it. They said, it describes this, this picture of someone, uh, the, this, the utter disregard right, of the rich man who's living in this self-indulgence while his neighbor is starving and poverty-stricken. And it's, it's, a, it's this abuse of wealth that we see. It's not that wealth is always evil, but here we see sort of the abuse of wealth, um, the excessiveness that wealth can breed in our own hearts, the slipperiness of our hearts when we have extreme wealth, uh, that we relish our own lives and our own experiences over the value of others, right? that we can dehumanize them. And in this sense, the rich man's literally dehumanized Lazarus. He's, he's, he's not at the table in any way. He's been ignored, and, and we forget that he's made in God's image as well. Poor man Lazarus is happy eating the crumbs. Like, it's not like he's even trying to get a seat at the table, right? He just wants the rich man's crumbs, but there's no sign he gets any of that. In fact, he likely doesn't, right? He's at the rich man's gate, which means the rich man probably knew he was there and is intentionally disregarding him. So it shouldn't be a surprise that the poor man dies in relative obscurity. Um, and we read his spirit is carried by the angels to Abraham's side. And meanwhile, the, the rich man also dies and he's buried. Uh, poor man, we don't read that he's buried. So it could be these bodies just left kind of rotten in the street somewhere. Rich man gets a burial. Right? He's named, he's known, he's, he's got, his, got his gravestone, whatever it might be. And yet, he's sent to Hades in torment. And so, so far, the contrast between these two couldn't be clearer, right? Not only in their lives, but now in their deaths, uh, they're just total opposites. And I think that the first point from our text that I want to make is this. In our world, we still have the very rich and the very poor. We still have that. And whether, whether you think you are on the richer end of things or on the poorer end of things, uh, it's kind of beside the point. The, the point, I think, is this, is how will you choose to live your life? Will you live your life, whether you are a richer person or a poorer person, will you live that life for yourself primarily? Or will you live that life also seeking the good of others? Because you can't serve two kingdoms, right? You can serve the kingdom of self, or the kingdom of God. You can serve the kingdom of self, which is really evident in the way the rich man lives, or we can seek to love God with all our hearts and all our souls and all our mind and all our strength and to love our neighbors as ourselves. 
I want to take, that's the first thing I want to say. The second thing I want to say is this, is just take a minute to think about what Jesus describes here after death, right? What does it mean to be at Abraham's side? What's he describing? It, it means essentially that this poor man, Lazarus, is welcomed into the fellowship of other believers as they're waiting for the resurrection. They're in the company of Abraham, right? The father of the Jewish people. And Hades, by contrast, is a place for the wicked or the dead. It's sort of this early idea of hell in some sense. It's a place of torment. And we get this idea that there's this unbridgeable gulf between the two, between uh, Abraham's side and Hades. And uh, so now, the previous, again, the previous earthly situations where the rich man was sort of exalted and the poor man was low have really been reversed, right? Because now poor man is fine, rested, whole, healed, present with others, and the rich man is in torment, obscure, languishing. Now, let's just pause for a second. Remember, it's a, it's a parable. I think we need to be careful not to push the details of the parable uh, further than they should go when it comes to talking about the afterlife. Uh, nowhere else in the Bible do we have this idea that there's personal communication between people in heaven and people in hell. So I wouldn't stretch that point theologically a whole lot. However, it does seem clear that upon one's death, believers and unbelievers have some sort of conscious awareness of their eternal state, even though they're not yet in that eternal state until after the resurrection comes. Again, Jesus isn't teaching specifically about what happens upon death. He's telling a parable. But it's worth just noting those things. The point is not so much what happens when you die, though that is important. The point is actually found in the conversation that follows between the rich man and Abraham and the implications that has for us. So let's take a look again. What does he say? Verse 24. This is the rich man. He calls out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. The first thing he says is have mercy on me, right? Which is essentially uh, saying I've, I've done it wrong. I need forgiveness. I need help, right? Have mercy on me. Send Lazarus essentially to dip his finger in water and cool my tongue. I'm in anguish in the flame. The first thing he does is he realizes he's made mistakes, but he's made those mistakes too late. He realizes it too late. He can't do anything about it. His unwillingness to love his neighbor actually stemmed from an un unbelief in his own heart. And so we discover that the rich man is not actually a true child of Abraham. He's ethnically Jewish, right? He was born in the right family, so to speak. But he's not one of Abraham's true offspring. He doesn't have Abraham's faith in God. And that, I think, is the second point I just want to make this morning. Again, very quickly. Though physically the rich man is a Jew, ethnically he's from Abraham, he's not a true offspring. He lacks Abraham's faith in God. And again, that is just another sign of the great reversal in Jesus' parables. And it's worth noting for us as well that being part of God's family isn't passed on to you. It's not, you're not sort of part of the family of God just by virtue of like your skin color or like the power of your last name or because your parents were Christians, or some, like some, you have some kind of certain socioeconomic status. It's not, that doesn't really happen. You don't get into God's good books just because someone around you was a faithful believer. And your good works don't get you into heaven either. That's not how it works. But becoming part of God's family isn't about 
being a good enough person. It's about how we respond to Jesus. It's found entirely in whether or not we will recognize our own sinfulness and repent of that and respond to the grace of God in Christ that he's won for us at the cross. And so we can live our lives thinking, I'm a pretty good person, I'm doing okay. And yet, like this rich man, who thought probably thought he was doing okay, I mean, we're seeing the obvious flaws, but he probably thought, I'm doing all right. At the end of his life, what good he thought he may or may not have done didn't account for much. And for us today, we can see people around us who are doing pretty good. We think, man, that's a good person over there, right? They're good people. But God looks at our hearts, folks. He looks at our hearts, and our hearts need to recognize our own sinfulness and to respond to the grace of God and say, yes, Jesus, I need you in my life. I'm really broken. And as much as I may put on this facade that I'm really good out there, there's, there's issues in here that I need to deal with. And Lord, you're the only one that can set that right. So the rich man discovers he hasn't gotten that straight until too late. He was distracted by a lot. And it's easy to get distracted by a lot, isn't it? He's distracted by a lot. But he failed at the most important thing. And so again, that really hits home to Jesus' listeners and to us as readers this morning. The question is, well, what, what will we do with God? Will we surrender to him and follow him? Or do we follow ourselves? Again, Jesus' point, you can pursue the kingdom of God or the kingdom of self. Who will you pursue? What will you pursue? And that's shown, not just in our love for God, but in how we treat our neighbors. So the rich man realizes, okay, it's too late for me. Maybe I can get my brothers off the hook, right? I got these five brothers. So he says, okay, can we send the poor man, Lazarus? Can we send him back? He actually is using his name now, which is interesting. Can we send him back, like, from the dead? And it will be very dramatic, and he will show up at my brother's houses and be like, guys, older brother, remember that guy who died? Yeah, he's not doing great, so you need to get your lives figured out, right? Like, let's do that. That's, that's the rich man's plan. We can, we can send Lazarus, and they'll warn them about this, this place of torment. And what does Abraham say? Verse 29, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they'll repent. Will they? Will they really? He thinks so. He thinks so. Notice the key word of what this is all about has finally been said. They need to repent. I didn't repent. It's too late for me. Maybe they'll repent. Repentance means turning our lives around from one direction and following God instead, right? It's, it's not just being sorry emotionally about something. It's about choosing to direct our lives in a different way, moving from being apart from God to moving towards God. So the rich man believes, hey, if we send Lazarus, I, I think it's kind, of, it's kind of funny how actually the rich man's plan is to use the poor man at the end of the day for his own purposes, actually. He's still kind of dehumanizing him. Anyway, that's beside the point. He believes, we'll send the poor man, 
And it will be so marvelous because they'll see this resurrected guy that they'll turn from their ways. Right? We'll hope, we hope they'll repent and that supernatural sign will draw them. And that's a fair point. Um, I've heard that point many times before, right? Why doesn't God just do this in my life and then I'll believe in him? Or I don't believe in God because he allowed blah, 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 whatever in my life, right? Or wouldn't the whole world just believe if Jesus showed up and did some kind of miraculous sign so that we, no one could deny the evidence and then everyone would get it? Yeah, well, that happened. It's called the resurrection. And it didn't, it didn't cause everyone to suddenly become a Christian. It caused a lot of people to, but it didn't cause everyone to. It didn't lead to the whole world suddenly, you know, entering into revival. The fundamental issue of repentance is not a lack of evidence for God. It's an issue of the hardness of our hearts. And that's what Abraham's getting. He said, they have Moses and the prophets. They, they have access to know who God is and what he's like. He's revealed himself through his word. They can live. He's spoken. You say, God, would you speak to me? He's spoken. It's right there. He's, he's telling you. It's right here. The issue is not whether God's spoken or whether God has moved miraculously or whether he's shown up in the way you think. The issue is the hardness of our own hearts to respond to the word he's already said. And we know that not just from Jesus' experience, but we know it from another guy, and now we come back to the name. Who's the poor guy? What's the poor guy's name? Lazarus. Well, where else did we have Lazarus? It was in John's Gospel. And what's that passage all about? Well, it's the final sign of Jesus revealing who he is. And he brings Lazarus back from the dead. And what happens? Well, people do come to faith, and people are very excited about Jesus. We see it at his, at his entry into Jerusalem. Everyone shows up excited because they've heard what happened with Lazarus. But did it convert the people that had hard hearts? No. In fact, the miraculous sign of resurrec resurrection is the very thing that prompts Caiaphas and the Pharisees to plot to kill Jesus. In fact, the resurrection, the miraculous sign that the rich man thinks, well, 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 surely they'll repent if they see this. Abraham says, no, that's not how this works. And we see it in Jesus' own life. Once Lazarus is, is raised, that's the beginning of the sign that they're going to kill Jesus. Not because they don't want to believe. Well, not because it's so overwhelming they have to believe, but because they don't want to. Because the issue is not the evidence of God. The issue is the hardness of our hearts. And so Abraham basically says, if the hard-hearted people will choose not to listen to what God has said in Moses and the prophets, which means Israel's scriptures, right? If the hard-hearted people, including your five brothers, rich man, aren't going to listen to the Bible, whatever miraculous sign you think is going to make them repent isn't going to, isn't going to do it. So what's to become of the five brothers? Well, we don't know. Because Jesus does the thing where he ends the parable before the ending. And then makes you sit with it and go, oh, am I one of the five brothers? Oh, come on. Right? Thanks, Jesus. Now I have to decide what to do with my life. Right? It's left without a resolution, just like the prodigal son story. And so it just sits in our hearts. 
do I need to repent? Is there stuff in my life I need to give over to God, right? Have I, have I been ignoring what God has said in his word? Or am I open to it? Have I hardened my heart against God? Do I need to ask him to soften my heart? Will I turn with faith and repentance to God and let that flow out in a love for him that also means a love for my neighbors? Even if that means loving that person outside my gate, right? And I want to close with this thought before we come to the table. Just thinking about the last three parables. The last three parables all have echoed with similar themes. We've had a lost son, well, two lost sons, and their father. We've had a lost and dishonest manager and his master. And here we have a lost rich man talking with Lazarus. And each of those three stories feature a character who is deeply lost, either alienated from a parent or alienated from their employer, or we have a beggar pushed to the extremes of poverty and sickness. And in each of those stories, we also have a moment of God's grace shining through, right? The younger prodigal repents. He realizes he's gone too far. He comes back to his father. The dishonest manager, though he's still a rascal, decides to extend the master's generosity to the people around him to curry their good favor. I mean, he's not perfect, but he's seen a glimpse of God's grace. And Lazarus, Lazarus doesn't even really do anything in this whole passage, right? Everything happens to Lazarus. He hasn't done anything, but he's raised to life, and the story turns to not really be about Lazarus and not really be about the rich man either, but to be about the five rich man's brothers. Will they repent? And all of these stories, all three of them in this section, are all about God's grace and the call for us to repent. Jesus leaves the ending of the older brother left open for us to consider if we need to turn our hearts and here he leaves the five brothers' fate left open to. They're all kind of left in limbo. What's going to become of them? And in each of those stories, Jesus is calling Israel who is lost. Israel who's the lost son. Israel who's the dishonest manager. Israel who's the rich man who's ignoring the poor. Jesus is calling Israel who is lost to come out of her spiritual exile and to enter into the way of repentance, to enter into the way of God's salvation life. In fact, the nine occurrences of the word repentance in Luke's gospel all happen while Jesus is traveling on the road through Samaria and telling these stories. Jesus is recruiting people who will join him in that work as he sets his sights on Jerusalem. And it starts by choosing the way of repentance and following him. Jesus is welcoming along the way as he tells these stories, welcoming the, the poor and the outcast. It's a sign that Israel's exile is finally over and the new age is dawning and, and God's resurrection life has come. And those who want to be part of it can if they'll come through their hardness of heart and repent. Think of what Jesus says in his very first sermon in Luke's gospel, right? He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to bring good news to the poor. And yes, the rich can come too. We have Joseph of Arimathea, and we have uh, the rabbi Nicodemus, who become part of Jesus' followers, but Jesus doesn't go after just the brightest 
and the smartest and the best. Jesus doesn't seem to go after those with their proven leadership qualities. Jesus goes after all of us, and that includes the nobodies of the world, too. And he calls all of us to walk in repentance and to receive the grace of God. Jesus doesn't go around shouting repent after that initial sermon. It's not like he's just standing on a street corner yelling it louder and louder and louder, hoping people get it, right? Instead, what he does is he tells stories and invites people into the way of repentance and into the way of resurrection. And he calls us without raising his voice and story after story to enter into that salvation life. And so this morning, God's grace, the call of repentance, the promise of resurrection, let's pray that he would open our hearts in a fresh way, to respond to him, to lay aside whatever hardness may be there so that we can walk faithfully as his followers and extend that grace to those around us. Let's pray to that end as we come to the table. Jesus, I want to thank you that uh, your heart is for uh, all to come, that none would perish but have everlasting life. And Lord, I thank you that in this story we're reminded again of your love for the poor, but also, love, uh, Lord, your, your love and care for all people. And Jesus, this morning, it's easy to get lost in the details of who is rich and who is poor, and how do we respond to that well. But at the end of the day, Lord, your heart is that we would turn with repentance and follow you. So, Lord, we just pray this morning, if there is hardness of heart in us, if there's times in our lives where we have ignored those in need, if there's uh, fear, Lord, of following you or anxiety in our lives, Lord, we lay that at your feet this morning. We pray that you would come and move by your spirit, that we'd respond to your grace and we would know the power of repentance, that you come and cleanse us from all our sins. And Lord, that we would know the beauty of the salvation life that you give us as we look forward to your resurrection, uh, the general resurrection, Lord, where you would call us uh, and clothe us in you. And Jesus, as we come to this meal this morning, remembering your death and resurrection, would you fill us afresh with your spirit to be the people that you've called us to be and to shine a light for you in this world as we seek to pursue you and your kingdom. We ask this in your name. Amen.